Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This time it's episode 171, and we're going to talk about how we're killing our national parks and what we can do about that, because it's a pretty big problem. We're also going to talk about pressure and how it affects things in your van, a product review of something I've talked about before, but it keeps being one of the best things ever, and a place to visit that has a Tucker torpedo. And uh, if you don't know what a Tucker torpedo is, well, heck, I will tell you. Thanks, everyone, for coming back once again. I truly appreciate it. A couple of pieces of business before we jump in here. First off, I have to thank Tara, or Tara, I don't know how you pronounce your name, I'm sorry, Rob, Cody, and everyone else who did engage with the buy me a coffee slash built to go thing. Basically, folks, these people gave me money, and because they did, I have removed ads from the podcast. So the reason you didn't hear ads this week is because of the generosity of these folks, and I truly appreciate it. Going forward, I'm simply going to remind everyone once in a while that I have a Buy Me A Coffee account. It's at buymeacoffee slash built to go. That's uh, two T's, not three, not one. And if a few people give me a little bit of money every month, then that's it. We won't have any ads. And then if a lot lot of time goes by and I don't get anything, then maybe ads will come back. But I don't see that happening anytime soon. So thanks to those folks. I'm very happy to have the ads gone. And uh, yeah, we can move on with our lives. Now, I am positive that you are sick of hearing me whine (laughs) about my Mercedes. Yeah, well, I'm going to do a little tiny bit more whining. Um, If you remember last week, it was in the shop, and one of the problems was the TPMS light, which is the tire pressure monitoring system. This is a relatively simple thing. Inside the tires, there are little sensors, and the batteries go bad, and, you know, this is a 12-year-old van, so it's time. That's fine. And I had mentioned in the podcast that these parts are not terribly expensive, which is generally true. Like, for a Ford Transit, they're like 25 bucks a piece. It's not the end of the world. But I don't have a Ford Transit Oh, no, 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 I have a Mercedes. And the quote I got to replace all four of these sensors was $1,200. Yeah, that's right. They want $1,200 to replace the tire pressure sensors, which um, is, is crazy. It's ridiculous. I don't know what it is about Mercedes that they can't make these parts for the same price as everybody else. I mean, they work the same way. In fact, the Ford system is much more sophisticated. So, uh, yeah, another strike against the Sprinter, but uh, there you go. And I don't know what I'm going to do because I can't even get an appointment to get in there and get the parts, so I'm waiting for a call back from them. Anyway, whatever. But moving on, let us talk about our national parks. Now I'm talking about United States national parks. The U.S. has the most national parks of any country in the world and some very famous ones. You know, most people have heard of the Grand Canyon and we have Yellowstone and Yosemite. And uh, guess which state has the most national parks? Well, if you guessed Utah, congratulations, you were 
Wrong. No, the actual answer is California. (laughs) California has eight national parks. Utah has five. Colorado has four. And then we go from there. Um, Alaska has seven. Uh, Alaska has a lot of national parks, and it also has the biggest national parks, which isn't too surprising. And it also has the most remote national parks. None of that is terribly surprising. So don't forget Alaska. They've got stuff going on up there, too. Now, the reason I wanted to talk about this is because... National parks, especially post-pandemic, but even during the pandemic, have been seeing record numbers of people visit, which is great, right? I mean, these are public lands. This is a public good, and it's great that people are taking advantage of it and seeing this stuff. So overall, the phenomenon is good, but uh, it has created a problem. I mean, let's make up a park here. Let's call it Great Mountain Park. So let's say that Great Mountain Park is this beautiful park and they can hold about 10,000 people a day in the park. You know, that's that's how many people the roads can handle. There's enough restrooms for those people. There's campgrounds for those people. You know, that kind of thing. 10,000 is a good number. And, you know, much of the year, they're like, you know, on an early December day, they maybe have just a few hundred people. But then 4th of July comes around and 10,000 turns into 20,000 And there's a problem. And that's actually what's happening now at the United States' most popular parks. So what do you do about an overcrowding problem in a place where there's not much you can do to be able to fit more people? I mean, sure, you can add more restrooms, maybe make the roads wider, but it kind of changes the experience. And only so many people can fit on the south rim of the Grand Canyon, you know? Adding more people or making accommodations for more people to be there doesn't necessarily fix the problem. Now, time for a story that illustrates this point. In 2018, I took a group of people up to the Black Sea area, um, Scandinavia. We started in Stockholm, went to Estonia, Latvia, uh, St. Petersburg, and Russia. And St. Petersburg was the the highlight of the trip. Everybody wanted to go to Russia because it was, you know, the most exotic. I mean, we enjoyed Stockholm. We went to, some of us went to Denmark too, and we enjoyed all those places. They were wonderful. I mean, I, I, have, I would love to go back to Latvia or Estonia anytime. But Russia, St. Petersburg, and this is, of course, before the recent unpleasantness, was like an an historic and exciting place and famous for having some of the world's greatest museums. Uh, There's Pieterhof, which is um, kind of a palace that you can tour, and there's the Hermitage, which is one of the world's great museums. You will put it up there with the Louvre and the British Museum and whatever other museum you can come up with. The Hermitage is up there. So Russia being a weird country, I organized a tour that um, picked us up at the ship and took us to these places, Peterhof and the Hermitage and some other places, and then took us back to the ship because we didn't have visas. It's kind of complicated. If you go to Russia on a cruise ship, you don't have a real visa and you're not allowed to wander around by yourself. You must always have a tour guide with you. So, okay, fine. We're only there for the day. That's not a big deal. Everyone's excited. This is the one place we wanted to go. We get off the ship. We see all this Soviet architecture, and we, we got to ride a big hydrofoil. They, they call them rockets. That was a lot of fun. And we get to Peterhof, and, well, it's beautiful, but it's pretty crowded. Um, there's a bit of a wait, and you kind of just have to stay in this tight group, and it's fine. You get to see stuff, but, uh, yeah, well, it was just you wish there were fewer people there. But then we got to the Hermitage. And I have never been in a more crowded place ever in my life. I understand that the stories of the black hole of Calcutta are fictional, 
But this place wasn't. There was an enormous line to get in the building. Our tour guide was kind of amazing. She just grabbed us all, had us hold hands, and pulled us through the crowd like a ship cutting through the ice. I mean, it's just, it was kind of amazing. We skipped in front of all these people. I don't know what etiquette we were breaking or not breaking or what the deal was, but we were like, okay, bye everyone. You keep waiting in line. We're going in the Hermitage. And we get in the Hermitage and the Hermitage is kind of a big rectangular building with these galleries in it that are also rectangular. And they're, they're pretty big. I mean, some of them are maybe 30 by 100 or 150 feet. They're, they're pretty large. And every square foot of space has somebody standing in it. Now, I'm six foot tall, so I can see over the heads of many people in these situations. And I could see kind of the tops of the artwork. But basically, all we saw was other people's backs and shirts and noses and hair. And we couldn't see anything because all we were doing was being rapidly pulled through one of the world's greatest museums with 10,000 of our favorite folks. It was the worst tourist experience I've ever had. And it was in one of the most famous and most highly regarded places in the world. That's the situation we're in <laughs> with our national parks. Maybe not quite as extreme and certainly a lot less Soviet. But yeah, I mean, this is the problem. You cannot keep putting more people into a space and have it be that same space. And our national parks are at that breaking point right now. So what I'm suggesting is that we van life folks, many of us who have flexible schedules, and can do things a little differently than the weekend tourist who only has the long weekend to go see things, we can adjust what we do to help at least take a little bit of pressure off in these situations. So here's just a, a few things to think about if you're going to go visit a national park. Now, please do not think I'm trying to talk you out of visiting national parks. That is not what I'm doing. What I'm suggesting is that you uh, employ a strategy so that you have the best experience, and that will also mean that other people have a better experience too. So the first thing is, go there when it's not busy. I mean, it's kind of obvious, right? Don't go to Yosemite on the 4th of July. Don't go to the Grand Canyon on Memorial Day. If you can, go midweek. And if you really can, go off-season. Now, this is especially true in Utah. Utah's got five parks, and they are all in heavy, heavy usage. I mean, I used to live in Utah. When I went to Zion, you could feel solitude. You know, you, you were not surrounded by people. But now the situation is there's so many people going there that the parking lot fills up, and you have to take a shuttle bus even to get into Zion. And, well, it's a nature-y kind of place where you're supposed to commune with nature, and this just kind of takes away from it. Off-season is the time to see these things in Utah, because not only are there fewer people, it's also beautiful. I mean, Zion in the winter is far more interesting than Zion in the summer. Actually, arguably, Zion in the summer is unbearable. <laughs> it's too hot. But Zion in the winter, Arches in the winter, Bryce in the winter, Capitol Reef in the winter, all these places in the winter are really much more interesting. Now, is the winter the off-season? Well, not necessarily. Obviously, Utah's got a big ski season, and a lot of people take a day off of skiing and go see these parks, so you have to be fairly careful there. But 
if you go on weekdays, if you go on weekdays kind of a week after or a week before a major holiday, that's usually pretty good. In fact, probably the time you're going to see the fewest people in most of these spots is say the second week of September, where it's before fall foliage, if there is such a thing, but it's after school started. And that is a very light time for travel. In fact, I, I tell people who are going to book cruises that if you want to go on a cruise with few kids, go the second week in September or the third week in September. Now that said, you have another option too, which is don't go to the national parks. Now, obviously the national parks are wonderful. Yosemite, Yellowstone, I mean, these are just absolutely world-class scenery places. There's no disputing that. But again, crowds. If you are a person that really hates crowds, well, there's other places to go. <laughs> now, we have a national park system. It's at nps.gov. But there are more things out there than just parks. We have national lots of things. And they're in the same system, they're just not called parks. For example, give me a state. Just pick a state. South Dakota? Okay, we're going to look at South Dakota. That's the state you picked. All right. South Dakota has a national park. It's called Badlands. It's a very common national park. A lot of people love it. And of course, in South Dakota, there's also Mount Rushmore. Mount Rushmore is not a national park. It is a national memorial. There's also Wind Cave, a lesser-known national park that you can visit. There is the Missouri River, a national recreational river. There is a Minuteman Missile Site, which is a national historic site. There is an incredibly long trail called the Lewis and Clark Trail, the National Historic Trail. And there's Jewel Cave in Custer. That is a national monument. I mean, all these things are just in South Dakota. And obviously, the ones you've heard of are going to be more busy. But Jewel Cave... That sounds pretty cool. I could check that out someday. Now, it's it's in Custer, which is a pretty big touristy part of the state. So, again, you'd want to try to go on a Wednesday in the offseason. But I'm not trying to give you specific advice on where to go. I'm just suggesting that there's other stuff to see than the national parks. And if your only chance to go out there on the road is like July 4th weekend, go somewhere that no one's ever heard of. A lot of these places are just, well, I won't say that. A lot of these places are very impressive. They're national parks for a reason. It's hard to compare something to a national park, but some of these places are really quite stunning. I mean, there's Garden of the Gods in Colorado Springs, Colorado. That is a city park. It's, it's not a national anything, but it's one of the most beautiful spots in the country. There's Garden of the Gods in Southern Illinois, completely unrelated except for name, but it's this amazing rock landscape that seems completely at odds with the idea that you're in Illinois, but it's beautiful and it's well worth you visiting. It's actually a pretty easy place to visit and there's no fees. Anyway, so that's all I'm saying. Unlike last week's article that I talked about, I believe travel is a good thing and I encourage you to get out there and travel. But don't feel like you have to go to the national parks or any other touristy place just because that's the thing to do. Figure out what kind of thing you like, and if you do a little bit of research, you can find other places that are less well-known and are going to be a lot less crowded, and because of that, are likely to be more enjoyable. Tech Talk. Somebody on Facebook asked me to share this tidbit, and I've decided to turn it into a whole little segment here, but, you know, <laughs> pressure, air pressure... 14.7 pounds per square inch or so they say which is you know that's the average at sea level 
we don't stay at sea level. Uh, in fact, our vans don't really do sea level very much. We're usually up a little bit higher. And, well, I just had this happen when I went to Colorado. I went up as high as 10,000 feet at one point, and things started to inflate <laughs> in my van. Because when the air pressure goes down, things that have air in them or any kind of gas are going to expand. And you have to be aware of this because it does cause some problems in your van. Some of your food items are going to expand. They're going to change shape. And it's usually not drastic. I mean, you're not going to have cans explode because you went up in elevation. But like bags of chips and things like that, yeah, they're going to puff up. And the opposite is true. If you open, say, a Ziploc bag at 10,000 feet and then go down to sea level, it's going to be a little bit kind of sucked in, you know? And most of the time, it, it doesn't matter. Who cares? A time when you should care is with your plumbing. Now, if you have a fresh water system that's plumbed and you turn on the faucet and water comes out, that's pretty much going to fix itself because you're usually using a pressure pump and changes in pressure are just fixed at the pump. When you turn on the water, it might spurt and sputter a little bit, but that's not a big deal. Now, the thing you need to worry about is your black water and especially if you have a cassette toilet. I like cassette toilets more than most people do. I think they work pretty well. They just have the one drawback of being unpleasant to empty. They're also unpleasant if you prepare it and use it at sea level and then drive up to 10,000 feet and try to use it again because all that air in the tank has now become pressurized. And when you open the little flap, well, that pressure has to come out. And sometimes it comes out with all the contents of the inside of your toilet in a bit of a foul volcano. And uh, <laughs> a lot of people have been caught by this. Most cassette toilets now have a button to press that vents the air. Now, even that can be unpleasant because it's venting air that's in the tank. But venting that air is a controlled process, and it's much, much better than just opening the flap and having things go absolutely crazy. So, word to the wise, if you have a cassette toilet and you're going to be changing pressures or altitudes, make sure you press that button before you use it. Some of you with composting toilets or composting toilets, I'm getting trouble no matter what I say, you may have similar issues too with your urine tanks, depending on how they're set up. So just keep in mind that if you've driven up a lot, you've got a difference in pressure and that's really going to affect some things. And some of them are pretty nasty. Product review. So in my ambulance, I put in a fixed gas grill. I don't know why exactly. I just decided that I wanted this to be a fancier build and I wanted a fixed gas grill in the countertop. And you know, a lot of builds have this. It's not that unusual. But now that I've done that, and I got a fairly fancy gas grill. It actually has a battery in it that you, when you turn on the flame, it sparks and lights itself. I don't have to use matches or anything. And I also don't have to turn on the inverter to use my stove, which is how most of those work. Mine just uses a battery. It's pretty fancy. It has a high output one and a low output one, and it's fine. It was a pain in the butt to install because it was European, and I had to do all kinds of adapting to make it work with U.S. propane, but fine. It's fine. However, I still carry around my butane stove. I have a gas one dual fuel butane stove. It also uses propane. You get to pick, which is really pretty cool. It's 30 bucks and it outperforms my two or $300 gas grill that's installed in the van. 
it outperforms it. You put in the butane or propane, you turn the knob, and it clicks without any electricity. Well, all right, it generates a spark, but you don't have to have a battery or anything. It lights, it's adjustable, it's high output. Honestly, it's a great cooking experience, and I wonder why anyone does anything different, actually. I mean, all right, my gas stove that I have in my van is hooked up to a big propane tank, so I don't have to worry about running out of butane or propane. There's that advantage. But this little one I can carry with me and go cook on a picnic table at a park or at a rest area or wherever. I don't have to be stuck in the van. So, you know, I suppose ideally you'd have both, but honestly, the built-in system well, it's just not really necessary because I could easily just left that spot a countertop and use my butane stove on there. So yeah, if you're new to this, if you're just starting out, I'm going to recommend you buy one of these. It's 30 bucks. It's not the end of the world and you can even get them cheaper, but I, I think you should get the dual fuel one because it can be hard to get the butane on the road. By the way, side note, if you're going to do this and use it a lot, buy the bulk butane on Amazon. It is by far, by far the cheapest way to get the butane. And if you're going to use propane in those gas bottles, those green bottles, which is a whole other story, those things are kind of a problem. I have found them cheapest in bulk at Walmart. So I have a link in the show notes to this thing. Uh, gas one makes a, a very common one. There's a whole bunch of different brands. It's the one I use. So that's the one I'm going to recommend. And it looks like they upgraded it. Mine has a hose that goes to the propane bottle and the new ones have actually a metal pipe that looks like it's a bit stronger. So gas one butane stove, honestly the best cooking experience I've had in a van and for 30 bucks, I don't know that you need to spend any more. Tales from the road. So way back in the day, I used to help organize a conference called The Amazing Meeting in Las Vegas every year. You can Google that. It's got a Wikipedia page. We had all kinds of famous people come to this. It was, it was quite an experience. And it was put on by the James Randi Educational Foundation, which I've mentioned many, many times. But after one of the earlier TAMs, as we called them, we had a meeting in a boardroom at the uh, Stardust Hotel in, in Las Vegas, which is no longer there. And there were some very interesting people at this meeting. Uh, James Randi was there because it was his foundation, and I was there because I was acting as his general manager at the time. But there was also Penn Gillette of Penn & Teller and a couple of other fairly well-known magician-type folks. Um, I think Banachek was there. Banachek currently has a show at what used to be the Stratosphere. I guess it's just called the Strat now. Anyway, we were talking about directions that the organization could go in, like... Should the organization continue to expand its community or should it get actually smaller and just focus on Randy's writings? I mean, this is the kind of meeting that you have with a nonprofit, a small nonprofit anyway, from time to time. And it was getting a little bit heated. It wasn't that anyone was angry or yelling. It was just that they were kind of two opposing ideas. And, well, I had to pee. <laughs> But I didn't want to leave because I didn't want to miss anything because this was really important stuff we were talking about. But it went back and forth and back and forth. And, and Penn Jillette, who's a very large and kind of shouty man, had one point of view. And I was on the other side as it happened with the point of view. So basically the two point of views were more community, less community. I was in the more community side. Penn was in the less community side. But I had to pee. <laughs> I didn't want to miss anything. I know, I said that twice. The thing didn't skip. And finally, I was like, okay, 
I'm going to pee. So I get up to pee, figuring that they're going to talk without me because, I mean, I was not the most important person in the room by any, any stretch of the imagination. And I go into the, the restroom at Stardust. And uh, if you're not male, there's a etiquette to urinals at the men's rooms usually. And that is that you don't go to a urinal next to someone else unless you have to. So if there are five urinals, maybe the first person in would go to the one in the middle of them all, number three, and then the second person in would go to, say, number one, the third person would go to number five, and then people, subsequent people are stuck. They either have to go to two or four, and they're going to be next to people, and, and that's okay. If there's no other choice, that's okay. But if there's a choice, it's weird, it's uncomfortable, and you wonder what's going on. So... I went in there and there was nobody in there. And as I recall, there were three urinals and I sidle up to urinal number one and I'm doing what you do at urinals and the door opens and in comes Penn Gillette. and he goes to number two. <laughs> I mean, urinal number two, that is, he is standing right next to me. And there's another rule about urinals is that, well, you kind of don't talk to the person next to you. Now, this is this rule's broken all the time, especially if there's been a lot of alcohol involved. But uh, it's a rule I follow. It's a rule I appreciate it when people follow. And apparently it's a rule that Penn Jillette doesn't follow. Because as we're doing our thing here, and, and let me just say right here, Penn is a very large man. As we're doing our thing, he says to me, well, you're the one. And I'm a little confused by this. Given the context, I'm not really sure what that means. And then he said, yep, it was you. You were the one that when you left, the meeting stopped. Anybody else could have left, the meeting would have kept going. But you were the one that the meeting was focused on. And I said, oh, interesting. And finished up my business, maybe a little sooner than I should have. And zipped up and then washed my hands and left the room and went back to the meeting. And Penn followed shortly after. And we continued the meeting. But it was a strange moment because I I was just there. You know, I was, a, I was in the meeting. I was certainly part of the meeting. But I wasn't an important part of the meeting. And yet, I was somehow. When I left, the meeting stopped. Not just because other people had to pee. But because if I wasn't there, the meeting couldn't continue. <laughs> it was a, it was just an interesting moment. That's it. I mean, that's the whole story. Uh, the, the, I mean, it's not the whole story. It's, it's <laughs> oh, there's so much more story I could tell that I can't actually tell. But um, it's, it's so you know, Penn Penn and I had interactions over the years just because he was involved with the organization and personally friends with Randy. I went over his house and watched movies a couple times and were, was in some meetings with them and, and dinner and things like that. We were never friends, but Penn is just this guy. He's a really interesting guy. Um, there are parts of him I really don't like. I think he can be a bully sometimes and I'm not a big fan of that, but I always respect him and I always respect his opinion even if I disagree with it a hundred percent, which happens from time to time, I, this was just one of those experiences that because I was associated with these people, I got to interact with all these other interesting people. And, uh, and you know, now that I don't do that kind of stuff anymore, it's, it's kind of amazing to like turn on the TV and see somebody there that I once had a discussion with while we were both urinating. 
<laughs> it's been a strange life, folks. That's all I'm trying to say. And heck, if you want to have a strange life too, you just have to learn how to take risks and seize opportunities and just be in the right place at the right time. That's all I got for you. A place to visit. I would really like to go to Maine for some reason. Maine has been on my mind. I haven't been there in a while. And there is a place that the next time I go to Maine, I, I hope I get to visit. It's in Arundel, Maine, and it is called the Maine Classic Car Museum at Motorland America. Now, Motorland America is actually a car dealer. They sell used classic cars. But in the back, they have a museum of some of the world's most classic cars. And I've been to a number of these classic car museums, and a lot of like, times there's fake things in there, like, oh, here's the Batmobile, and then you look in the fine print and you find out it's, you know, duplicate number 27 of 400 or whatever. Not every classic car museum can have the Batmobile, you know, but this place, what they have does seem to be authentic. I know they don't have the Batmobile, but what they do is have examples of famous cars, such as, as I mentioned, the Tucker Torpedo. Tucker Torpedo was a revolutionary car. They made a movie out of it with, with Jeff Bridges about this car. It's almost a little bit like Tesla, right? It's this car that like improved on everything and then almost took over the world and then didn't. There aren't that many Tucker torpedoes out there, but you can see one at this museum. They also have President Roosevelt's 1937 Packard, a presidential car, and uh, they have an aqua car, one of those cars that you could just drive into the water and it turns into a boat. I've always loved those. I actually saw one in the wild last year and that was a uh, wild and you know they have a hudson hornet and they have a number of the cars that were the basis of the cars in the movie cars and all its sequels and everything so it's 12 bucks and you're in a rundle main which is just filled with beauty and you know if i were up there and i wanted to like get out of the woods for a little bit and and just see some civilization I would go to the Maine Classic Car Museum. So it has been added to my bucket list. I'll have a link in the show notes. It's on Route 1 in Arundel. And um, if you've ever been to Arundel, that means you can't miss it. Because <laughs> Route 1 is the main road in most of Maine, actually, where most of the population is. And I just think it's nice to see these old things and just have some perspective. And, and they're beautifully kept. And they also have people there who will tell you the stories about the cars and why they're significant and everything. So... Check it out if you happen to be in Maine, and this is just one of the hundreds and hundreds of things to see in Maine. I think Maine is underappreciated because people just think, oh, it's the Northeast, it's all crowded and everything. Yeah, not Maine. Resource recommendation. I came across a video that I want to share with you. It's actually a whole channel, but it's uh, from this guy called Nomad. I am Nomad. Nomad with a line through the O. And what Nomad is known for is uh, he built out vans. Okay, many people do. But he built his vans out of foam. Foam. Yes, not, not like the foam in your coffee, but like XP foam, uh, polyiso foam, you know, that, that pink stuff that is foam. It's, it, I'm not talking about pink fiberglass insulation. I'm talking about the rigid foam that has incredible R value. He builds his whole rig out of that, like the walls and the bed and all this stuff. And he's come up with a system of doing it that has a lot of advantages. I mean, this stuff's lightweight. 
It's cheaper than plywood. It's easier to cut than plywood. It's especially easier to cut like complex angles with. He just uses a hot wire and makes any shape he wants in it. And he cuts in puzzle pieces so that this stuff can be taken out of the van and then assembled kind of to see if it all fits without any glue or anything. And then when he's tested it enough, he'll glue it in. And he talks about which kinds of glue to use. Very, very in-depth. And I think if you're building out a new van, you should take a look. Now, he doesn't use the foam for every last thing. There are places where he does have wood. For example, cabinet doors are not ideal for using this foam. But any kind of walls... And obviously you can use it for insulation, but we're not talking about that. We're talking about like building your cabinetry out of this foam and then facing it with a veneer of wood or something like that. Very, very interesting. So have a look. I'll have a link in the show notes. Um, You can go onto YouTube and, and search for Nomad Foam Bones. And that should get you to the videos or just click on the link. He's got a whole bunch of videos, a tour of his rig, how he does it, why he does it, why foam is better, what's the best kind of glue to use. I mean, you will learn everything you can possibly know about this stuff if you watch the video. So, uh, hey, check it out. Just another idea to help you with your van build. Well, folks, thank you very much for listening to episode 171. Absolutely glad that you return each week. And as a reminder, if you like this episode or you like the podcast in general, you can buy me some diesel at buymeacoffee.com slash built to go. That's two T's, not three, not one. Music, as always, is by Simon Wagg. And until next time, remember the words of Yogi Berra, who said, nobody goes there anymore. It's too crowded.